Hey, we're thrilled that you decided to join us here at Seoul this morning. Uh, my name is Jordan. I pastor our youth and our high school students here. And uh, it's going to be a good morning. It is going to be a very good morning. Uh, if you were with us last week, you would be here when Pastor Jordan McClellan taught, uh, or he o- reopened up our series, God in the Movies. And uh, we looked at Back to the Future last week, and we dove in, uh, having this conversation about what can we learn from Hollywood film, and then how does that tie to Scripture, and what are we supposed to make of that as Jesus followers? And tonight, tonight, whoo, yeah, uh, bright and early this morning, uh, we are going to continue that series. Uh, I'll just throw a little bit of a disclaimer out there right off the bat that our film that we have decided uh, to go with today probably has about a PG rating for the films or for the clips that we're going to see. So if you do have your young kids with you, you might have to answer a couple questions afterwards, but I'll leave that in the hands of you parents. Everything we do here at Soul Sanctuary, whether it's a a sermon series, uh, God in the Movies, whether it's worship, right, whether it's the song that that Jeremy just sung here, whether it's our midweek life groups, our school ministry, every, everything we do falls uh, in a unified vision. It's all for a purpose. And that purpose is for us to uh, individually, but, but even more importantly, collectively, as a community, to know God. And then to move forward from knowing God is then to come to know freedom. And then from knowing freedom is to come to know purpose, and then moving forward from knowing your purpose, we're in this together as a community, to know God, to know freedom, to know purpose, and then finally to make a difference. Together we journey this life, and we look constantly to Christ as he leads us and guides us and directs us in his way. So let's pray before we get started this morning. Lord, may The words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts, and may the actions of our lives be acceptable in your sight. Amen. So Sanctuary was established back in 2004. And in 2004, uh, we we met in a uh, movie production building just down on Chevrier uh, that's now a, a Coptic church. But back then, it kind of had these massive studios, and, and we would meet in there, and we would move from one room to the other. Our rent was never really secure. Uh, we bounced around, and then after leaving that building, we went from movie theater over here to movie theater over here. And the series God in the Movies just kind of stuck with us, because it, it was almost a part of our DNA from the very beginning. We would talk about films because they were so deeply ingrained in our everyday Sunday, or our every Sunday experience. And this was the history of Soul Sanctuary. And it was quite easy to say to somebody, hey, like, come to church with me. We're meeting in a movie theater. It smells like popcorn, and we're going to talk about a movie in Jesus. And so we continue that series here today. Uh, We gather together as the people of God. We gather together as the body of Christ. We gather together as the temple of the Holy Spirit. We gather together this morning as the church. And we submit ourselves to teaching, not from Hollywood movies, but from God's word. And we continue a journey in following in the way of Jesus. And we do it together. We can't do it by ourselves. And we look at Hollywood films to help us understand what it means to be a Jesus follower in our day 
and time. So movies and their influencers, or movies are, and their actors and their directors, they are the influencers of our day. They hold a very large degree of power in society and on social media, rightly or wrongly. Uh, people sit in theaters, they sit on their couches. I mean, like a lot of young adults in this section. Just think about your Christmas vacation. I know you just binge Netflix the whole time. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And probably a lot of you too, right? You take your time off. And what do you do? You watch, you consume. And this, this is our day and age. We watch, we consume, we just eat up the narratives that are being fed to us. And there's not many places where you'll go and you'll sit passively for 90 minutes just to watch the same thing on a screen. And you have to pay to do it. But we do it with film. We do it with movies. It speaks to us in one way or another. It communicates uh, messages of morality. It, it communicates philosophical systems. Movies communicate moral. They, they, they communicate cultural values. And these are things that we eat up. They also communicate theological themes. And what somebody thinks about God is projected onto the screen and then reprojected onto us. In Acts 17, the Apostle Paul, he engaged the pagan Athenians. After arriving in Athens, uh, Paul gets to know the lay of the land. He hangs out in the marketplace. He's, he's hanging out in the city. And what does he discover? But the Athenians are grossly spiritually misled. They're worshiping all sorts of gods. They don't even know some of the gods that they're worshiping. They're nameless. And Paul comes into the city. And before preaching about Jesus, he understands the landscape. But then fearlessly, Paul begins to proclaim Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And in doing this, people in Athens start hearing that there's this man preaching Jesus. So what do they do? They grab Paul and they bring him to the high court. And then they ask Paul to explain his new teaching about Jesus. But Paul has already been in the city. He's read the monument inscriptions. He's studied. He knows what he's talking about. And he begins to speak in their own language. He begins to use uh, the common vernacular as he explains about Jesus Christ. Paul knew his audience. He knew who he was talking to. And he made specific attention so that they would understand what he's saying. So in turn, this morning, we use the philosophers of our day to teach about Jesus. Our movie this morning is Crazy Rich Asians. Watch the screen. Crazy Rich Asians is the story of Rachel Chu. She's an Amer or a Chinese-American economics professor. And she falls in love with Nick Young, who just so happens to be uh, one of Singapore's richest developer's son. He's kind of the heir to the empire, and she doesn't know it. And the main conflict of the movie comes in where, where Rachel, she's raised by a single mother, who fled China to the United States. And Rachel's kind of this self-made girl. She, she put herself through school. She sacrificed to make it happen. But she doesn't fit the mold of what Nick's family wants Nick to marry into. They don't want Nick's wife to come from a family of a single mother. They don't want Nick's wife to be a Chinese-American. And so this is the conflict. And, and, and this conflict grows throughout the film. And Crazy Rich Asians, the film, is the story about love persevering through trial. 
It's the story of self-sacrifice for the good of the family. And simply put, it's the story of family conflict. You and I, we have a deep longing for acceptance. We desire to be accepted. Uh, this, is, this is across the human experience. We are meant to live in community. We understand that. But sometimes we do things that maybe we wouldn't normally do to be accepted. A couple of years ago, I was hanging out with my brothers. We were on Vancouver Island, and uh, we were spending a Christmas there. And there was a refrain that, w- that one of my younger brothers picked up somewhere, but it began to be echoed right throughout our trip. And it was a chant, and it was, do it and you're cool. Do it and we'll like you. And boys are dumb. Let me start with that. So we would be like in Goldstream Park, and it's just like beautiful. You know, there's a river going through, and, and we're all just hanging out together. And, and one of the brothers has a bright idea. It's like, you see those, that, that raging river there and the algae-filled rocks? Jump from one to the other and get to the other side of the river. Do it, and you're cool. Do it, and we'll like you. It's like, see that bottle of hot sauce at breakfast? Uh-huh, uh-huh, you know? Drink it. Do it, and you're cool. Do it, and we'll like you. Boys are dumb. See that flight of 20 stairs? You can clear it. I believe in you. Do it and you're cool. Do it and we'll like you. Finally, boys are dumb. No one actually crossed the treacherous waters. No one actually chugged the hot sauce. And no one actually jumped the the flight of 20 stairs. But the frame was heard and laughed at over and over and over again throughout our trip. But this stupid little refrain echoes something true about us. We do things to be cool. We do things to be liked. It's in us. It's deeply ingrained in us. We want to belong. Watch this clip. Rachel's mom alludes to this difference that exists. The Asian families are different, and Rachel is different. And we have the conflict kind of brewing, right? It's like, they can't not like me, and mom just doesn't say a word. And it's foreshadowed for us. Rachel wants nothing more than to be liked. She wants nothing more than to fit in. And she can't see why Nick's family won't like her. Watch this clip. Rachel learned something that Nick's kept from her. His family is crazy rich. Not only does Rachel now have to fit in with a culturally different family, she has to fit in uh, where there's a class discrepancy. Rachel doesn't belong with the rich and the elite. She's a self-made woman from America. The conflict's brewing. This morning, we're going to go to our scripture in Romans 14. Paul is writing to the Christians in Rome about a separation that exists in their church. There's two kinds of Christians that are in the Roman church. There are Jewish converts to Christianity, and there are Gentile converts to Christianity. The Jewish converts to Christianity, they grew up practicing Mosaic law. They grew up as Jews. And they came to believe, through the apostles' teaching, that Jesus Christ was Israel's promised Messiah. The Gentile converts to Christianity that existed in the Roman church, they did not grow up with the Jewish law and customs. In fact, all of that was obscured to them. They were now coexisting with people who who came from a history 
very unlike their own. The Gentile converts probably spent most of their time worshiping pagan Greek and Roman gods. Uh, they, they had a plurality of gods as opposed to Israel's one true God. So this switch to worshiping Jesus was dramatically different for them. And so what you do is you take two people from two different histories and you bring them together in the church, in the people of God, in the body of Christ, and conflict arises. We go to Romans 14. The verses are on the screen, and we're going to break this apart. Romans 14, 1-4. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. Paul is referencing the weak person as the person who eats only vegetables. And this is not Paul's shot at a vegetarian. I mean, you can knock your vegan or vegetarian friend next to you. Paul's not using weak as an insult. I mean, it's happening right there. <laughs> Paul's not using weak as an insult. He's using weak uh, as an understanding of immature in faith. Or, or maybe on the right track, but slightly misguided. This is what Paul is talking about. And who he's referencing here is the Jewish Christians in Rome who are still adhering to their customs uh, from when they were Jewish. Now they've, they've converted to Christianity, if you want to put it that way. They've accepted Jesus as Israel's promised Messiah, but they are still upholding their dietary laws. And this is confusing to the Gentile converts to Christianity who really just don't get what's going on. They say, why, why, well, why are you eating that? Why are you not eating that? And this discrepancy begins to grow. And what seems maybe to us as a bit of a non-issue was massive here. And this is why Paul is writing to the church in Rome. And he's being so strong about this. He's saying, don't judge one another for what you're eating and what you're not eating. You're eating it to the Lord. Don't fight with each other. These are little things with, with minuscule significance right now. There's bigger issues at hand in Rome. Get over it lovingly, Paul is saying. So, verses 5 to 9. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, and he gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us die to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. It's for to this end that Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living." Paul moves on from dietary restrictions and he starts talking about the observance of feast days and of the Sabbath. This is what he's talking about when he's talking about days. He's saying, for you, this day is holy. But for you, this day is not holy. But hey, if this day is holy for you, then may it be holy for you unto the Lord. And if they say, this day is not holy for you, then may it be unto the Lord, whatever you do with your time on that day. And Paul is making this Paul is taking two histories, the histories of the Gentile and the Jewish converts to Christianity, and he's bringing them up to each other. And he's saying, can we resolve our issues in the body of Christ? Can we resolve our issues in the church 
by the perseverance of unity instead of bringing division. There's enough division that already exists, Paul's getting at. And can we not unify? And how do we unify? We recognize that what he does, he does unto the Lord. And what she does, she does unto the Lord. And that we're in this together. Don't judge each other. And then Paul reminds them that everything, in everything they do, it's to the Lord. And we pick it up in 10 10 to 13. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Paul rounds it out to saying, Simply, don't judge one another in the body of Christ. And specifically, don't judge one another over things that are secondary to salvation in Jesus Christ. These things ultimately don't matter in the context of the Roman church. You're getting, you're getting obsessed over things that don't have an eternal impact, is what Paul's saying. And disunity is coming because of your obsession. Put Christ first in all things in your observances of feast days, in your observances of dietary restrictions. Put God first in everything. But then Paul, he makes a call to self-sacrifice. And this is interesting. When we're talking about unity and family and belonging this morning, Paul makes a call to self-sacrifice. He says, decide that you will do nothing that hinders your brother or sister's relationship with Jesus. Paul knew this, that self-sacrifice preserves unity and that selfishness destroys unity. We see in Romans 14 a parallel, albeit in a little bit more of a glamorous way, to our film this morning. We have Rachel who deeply desires to be a part of the family. She's done everything within her power to measure up, but her fear of not belonging is actualized when she encounters Eleanor, Nick's mom. Watch the screen. What Rachel encounters from Eleanor is rejection. She's judged. She's relegated to the outside of the family. She's told she will never be enough. And how much pain can a person take? When you watch the film, you see that this is a common theme throughout the film. Rachel's rejection and increasing in severity and then subsequent rejection again. How much can a person take? Have you been there before? You're constantly knocking on doors, doing whatever you can do to fit in. To make it happen, to be a part of a community. But because of your past, because of something you can't control, you will never be enough. This continued striving, it leads Rachel into a deep despair, depressed and bedridden. Have you been there? Can you relate to that? There's something worth mentioning here. In our, in our Western uh, humanist culture, uh, or our, our cultural narrative, it states that there's no reason for class distinctions, that, that love should not be burdened by familial ties, uh, that, that 
You should be able to love who you want to love, and it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of your love. And we're going to take a look at this deeper next week. We're going to discuss next week uh, the myth of the autonomous self and how that relates to Scripture. But when we're looking here, we've been so shaped by our Western uh, viewpoint that this idea of familial honor that Eleanor talks about. I mean, we see her glaring hypocrisy, but any degree of familial honor is lost on most of us. But what we are very well versed in is the desire of Rachel to belong. She's the character that we're immediately drawn to. Here's the primary difference between our film and our scripture today. The film centers around the personal happiness of Rachel and then Nick. It it sees personal happiness as the pinnacle of all human pursuits. If Nick and Rachel can be married, then all will be good in the world. If Rachel is accepted by mom and by grandma, then all will be good in the world. Then they're going to live happily ever after. The, the, uh, the tradition of marrying somebody from the same class is seen as a complete affront to personal happiness. And we as viewers are left to reconcile that. This idea of inclusion, of acceptance, and of unity is also deeply ingrained in the writings of Paul. However, we learn from Paul that unity is not for the sake of personal happiness. That, that acceptance is not for the sake of personal happiness. That inclusion is not for the sake of personal happiness. However, the unity is for the sake of the collective church. Unity happens when we refuse to judge one another. Unity happens when we lay down our preferences. Unity happens when we leave behind the things that don't matter. And instead, we seek to keep the peace among the body of Christ, among the people of God, among the church. Now Paul is writing to Christians. And he's imploring them here in Romans to quit judging one another over things that don't matter to your salvation. And he doesn't tell them to quit judging each other so that they will live happy lives, but so that through them Christ may be glorified. And our hope today as Christians is that through Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, we are accepted. A flowing from our acceptance in Jesus Christ is the command then for unity. And the command for unity is played out in our self-sacrifice of our comfort and of our preferences. And it's played out in the refusal to judge others and in the embracing of all of God's people the church. Watch the screens. It's in this moment that Rachel makes a sacrificial decision. She sacrifices the pursuit of her own happiness and union with Nick for the good of Nick's family. Rachel lays down everything that she holds close to her for the preservation of something beyond her. For those of us who don't play Mahjong the game that they're playing there, we miss the symbolism of Rachel giving up the winning brick to Eleanor as Eleanor completes her hand and wins the game. Rachel's given up her power card. 
she self-sacrifices so that Eleanor wins. Or as Rachel puts it, nobody really wins. But out of her own interests, but putting her own interests aside, she chooses to preserve the unity of the family. And Paul speaks to the Romans, and in nearly every epistle he wrote, he speaks repeatedly for the need for unity in the body of Christ. He reminds their, his churches that they were purchased at a cost. The blood of Jesus. He reminds them uh, that, that its grace is made possible by Jesus' life, death, his resurrection. By God coming to earth in the form of a man, Jesus Christ. Paul is continually reminding early Christians about this. And that life transformation is a result of following Jesus. And that life transformation then means that we deal with people differently than we would have before. That we become self-sacrificing as opposed to selfish. That people empowered by the Holy Spirit live differently. And here's our distinction again. As opposed to the pursuit of happiness and of worldly pleasure... The life of a follower of Christ is to bring God glory. And we do this by reading and understanding Scripture, by living life in community, and by preserving unity among us. In Paul's letter, his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and in thought. Perfectly united. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In Galatians chapter 3 verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. One chapter later in Romans, Romans 15, 7. Accept one another then, as Christ has accepted you. Paul's call is for unity among the church. Now, we don't get this confused with just sweeping things under the rug. That's not unity, that's an illusion of unity. And in our culture, we're really good at that. We don't get this confused uh, with ignoring sin. Because Jesus and Paul give very practical ways on how the church should deal with sin. This isn't that. This is self-sacrificing our comforts, our preferences, our time, our resource. For the betterment of the person next to you. For the betterment of the person in your life group. This is humbling ourselves. And putting the interests of others above our own. Unity in the church is a big deal. And it's echoed by Paul in almost every single letter. And hear now the words of Jesus shortly before his betrayal in John 17, 20-23. I do not ask the prayer of Jesus. I do not ask for these only. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, 
are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved them even as you loved me. Jesus' prayer shortly before his betrayal and his subsequent crucifixion is for his followers and the followers of his followers. He prays for a perfect unity. Just as Jesus and God are one, he prays that we may be one with each other. That Jesus' prayer is intense. Think about the unity of God with God. That's the unity he desires for you and for me. It's perfect unity. The intention of this unity that Jesus prays for is so that the world may recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. So first, on one hand, he prays for unity. He says, may they be unified, just as I and you, God and Jesus, are unified, for the purposes of people coming to know me as Savior, as an example of their unity, as a result of their unity. This actually doesn't really make sense to us. Because we're so far from the unity that Christ desired for his church. And we think the words of Jesus to be borderline impossible. How on earth will the unity of the church be supernaturally attractive to people that they may recognize Jesus as the Son of God who has come to save them from their sin? Those are the questions we ask. But when we look to the scripture, we see, in fact, That perfect unity does lead people to come to know Jesus. Look to Acts 2, 44 to 47. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. What did the early Christians do? They were perfectly one. They were one in union with each other. They lived in community with one another. And what happened? The Lord added daily to the number of those being saved. Jesus' prayer in John is actualized here in the book of Acts. We see a perfect unity. Now, let's not be fooled. Conflict exists. In fact, conflict probably abounded. The whole of the New Testament is talking about how we deal with each other as Christians. Conflict exists, and it's a completely normal part of doing life with each other, but how we choose to respond to that conflict is the difference of Christ marked in our heart. For me to stand up here and to talk about unity, and to look at it in the scriptures, and to proclaim it, it's a rather easy task. What's not easy is for you and for me to go out and to live it. And I'll tell you this much. The perfect unity that Jesus prays for for us doesn't happen in an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. Self-sacrifice doesn't just happen by giving somebody else your parking spot. It's so much more. It's so much deeper. 
The perfect oneness that Jesus desires requires us to be the church, to live the church beyond attending on a Sunday morning. And Jesus doesn't call us to a unity where we simply avoid fights with each other. No, the fights are going to happen and we're going to deal with them in a Christ-like manner. Jesus doesn't just, uh, he doesn't just dream of us, you know, not splitting as a church. That's not his intention. It's so much deeper. He, he, he dreams, he prays to God the Father of a unity where we treat each other like family. Where we meet one another's needs, where we care for one another. Regardless of the time or of the effort required, this unity that Jesus prays for does not come easy. It requires an abundance of forgiveness. It requires an abundance of grace. It requires you and I, like Rachel, to self-sacrifice for the good of the family. We must make a decision to obey Christ. I was reading this week, came across a, a quote uh, from a pastor named Francis Chan, which convicted my heart. He said, Obedience often grates against our natural desires. But if we only obey when it feels natural, then Jesus is not truly Lord of our lives. If you only obey Christ, if I only obey Christ when it's easy, convenient, makes sense for our budget, makes sense for our clock, then Jesus is not the Lord of our lives. Then we're the Lord of our lives and we're just bringing Jesus in tow. And that's not the kind of discipleship that Christ calls us to. So do we believe that God is able? Do we believe that the scriptural unity of the family that Jesus prayed for in the body of Christ is possible? Now, do we believe that people will come to faith, that people will know Jesus as a direct result of the unified church? If we do, then it's time to obey. To take a next step of obedience to Christ in living self-sacrificially in community with one another. In September of uh, last year, of 2018, we rolled out our new life group model. Uh, simply a structure for the way that we do our community groups, our life groups, our cell groups, whatever you want to call them, here at Soul Sanctuary. And at the end of this, the, the first semester, which was in December, we just sent a survey out, a simple 30-second survey to people uh, who signed up for life groups or are part of this church and took that next step in obeying Christ. It was just being in community with each other and living life in community, and growing together in a deeper knowledge of each other, and of God, and of the scriptures. And those surveys went out, and those surveys came back, and I had a chance to read through these surveys. And I was encouraged to read how uh, first-hand reports of how people came to know Jesus in their life groups this year, how there was a transformation of heart and of spirit, how they came to know that Jesus is their Savior, in the context of community as Christ intended it. I was encouraged to read of self-sacrifice where people enduring hardships were rallied around by the members of their life group who carried them when they could not carry themselves. I look at this and I begin to see a glimpse of the life that Jesus desired for the church. 
And it doesn't happen in an hour and a half on Sundays. It's when you and I make an intentional decision that we will live, that we will breathe, that we will be the church. That we will be the people of God. That we will be the body of Christ. That we will be the temple of the Holy Spirit. Living and active in our world. So this morning, I leave you with this. What's your next step? Rachel is our illustration this morning of self-sacrifice. And if you want the happily ever the happily ever after. You'll have to watch the rest of the movie. But Rachel is our example of self-sacrifice. Her deep desire to belong. Her deep longing. She desires acceptance. And she's met with rejection. But in the end, her self-sacrifice preserves the unity of the family. And it gets even better than that, but you'll have to watch it. So, what's your next step this morning? Maybe some of you need to make a decision to embrace this community, to commit to strengthening the body of believers with your presence. Maybe some of you need to repent for bringing division. Perhaps your next step is to join a group as they relaunch next Sunday. Perhaps you need to obey Christ's call on your life and begin living in community. Perhaps self-sacrifice is your next step. Up on the screen is our pastoral Caroline. It's a phone number. So if you don't pull out your phones for just a second, even if you're not texting it, so that the person next to you can text it. Up on the screen is our pastoral Caroline. And there it is. If you need help taking your next step. If you've come to a, a, a realization that you can't do life alone. If you desire to deepen your involvement in this community. I would ask you to simply text soul to that number. And our pastoral care team is going to follow up with you. And they will begin that first step of getting involved in your life and you getting involved in the life of the church. Simply text soul to that number. They're going to be in touch with you in 24 hours. We are called to be deeply unified. And our prayer is that soul sanctuary becomes a church like Christ Jesus prayed for. A church that has a perfect oneness, a church which is deeply united for the cause of Christ, a church which is made up of people who don't think twice at self-sacrifice for the good of the community. That's our prayer. Our prayer is to be deeply unified, to sacrifice ourselves, and like Rachel in Crazy Rich Asians, for the good of the family. Would you stand with me? On the screen is a simple responsive reading. It's a prayer for you and I to pray together aloud. I'll do the simple minister part and the congregational part. I'll ask for us to pray unified together.
O God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, our only Savior, the Prince of Peace. As there is but one body and one spirit, one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And amen. And that's our prayer this week. May we be unified in the perfect oneness that Jesus prayed for us. In times of old, the one who blessed would extend hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing would do likewise. If you want a simple blessing as you go here this morning, would you extend your hands? Soul Sanctuary, as you go, May you go with a renewed vigor for unity among the people of God, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the church. May you go with a heart free from judgment and heavy with a burden for the souls of the lost. May you go understanding the saving power of Jesus Christ and relying fully on the Holy Spirit. And may you go obedient to Christ and cleaving to his word. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Be blessed and we'll see you next week.